Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Hello, saints. If you'll turn, please, to Psalm 14. And stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 14 reads, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They have no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is your refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortune of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Yeah. 
This week, this coming Thursday, is Thanksgiving, a rather uniquely American holiday, a holiday that I don't really uh, have anything bad to say about, (laughs) despite what Jeff said about my (laughs) Christmas attitude. I, I like Thanksgiving because I think it's good to have a holiday where once a year everybody is reminded to just stop and be grateful. If you know anything about your Bible, you know that that is just thematic to the Bible. Over and over again, we are told to be thankful, grateful people. And so I I like the holiday. I made a video years ago where I went back and recited all of the early American proclamations that established Thanksgiving. That's why I said it is a uniquely American kind of thing that has begun to spread around the world. I am very much in favor of getting together with your friends and your family and then saying thanks to God. The only problem I see is that way too many people are going to be celebrating Thanksgiving while forgetting who it is they're thanking. But God in heaven, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who allowed us to be here, the one who is providing us with food, the one who gives us shelter, the one who reminds us of our own names, (coughs) the one who gives us health, the one who provides for us everything we have, we certainly ought to stop and say thank you. So... I like Thanksgiving. As a consequence, we're not going to be here this Wednesday, and we always take the Wednesdays off between uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, so January 3rd will be our first Wednesday back here. On December 13th, we will all be gathering here just to sing some songs, and the last couple of years that we've done that, it has been very popular. People have really enjoyed it, so... Come and hang out with us that night. Come sing songs. We'll even play Stump the Band and pick the songs you would like to sing. And the first person who suggests Frosty the Snowman will be asked to leave. Just so you know. It is my intention this morning to start the morning on an eschatological note. For those of you who don't know the word eschatological, it means dealing with last things, which here in the end of 1 Thessalonians, Paul has been dealing with questions about the final things. In the second letter to the Thessalonians, we're going to see that he even starts there yet again because the Thessalonians have a lot of questions as people do to this very day. A lot of questions about what's going to happen, what order is it going to happen in, what are our expectations. So we're going to start by answering a few questions about timing, because two weeks ago we talked about the fact that we're going to be rising into the air to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we ever be with the Lord. The catching away of the church, commonly referred to as the rapture, even though that word is not in the Bible, that is a good Latin term. That is the translation 
of the harpazo, which is the snatching away or the catching away of God's people to meet the Lord in the air. So we talked about that two weeks ago. Last week, we talked about not being appointed to wrath. And because the time of tribulation, the time of the great tribulation that Jesus spoke of, the time of tribulation that Jeremiah calls Jacob's trouble, so it's specifically Israelite trouble, a time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again, according to the book of Daniel. So Old Testament or New, we're told about this time of trouble and wrath that is coming, and then it was very reassuring to read Paul saying, but we are not destined to wrath. Really good news to know that we are not destined to the wrath of God. So then questions arise about when is this catching away of the church going to happen? Last week, I began speculating that if we're not appointed to wrath, and if that time of trouble is God's wrath, then we need to be taken away before that wrath. But there are people within the Orthodox Church world who believe that we are going to encounter some amount of that tribulation. So if the time of trouble, such as never was, ever will be again, if that is a seven-year period, which is what Daniel seems to indicate, that time of great tribulation, if the church is caught away to meet the Lord in heaven before that tribulation period, that is known as pre-tribulational or pre-tribulationalism, which I almost couldn't wrap my mouth around. So if you ever hear someone referred to as pre-trib, then what they're saying is they believe that the church is going to be caught away to meet the Lord in the air before the tribulation period starts. Now there is also an approach that says that the church is going to remain here for the first part of that tribulation period, but then be removed before the day of the Lord real wrath stuff is poured out. That's called mid-tribulationalism. So you hear some people called mid-trib. There is also uh, a position that says that the wrath of God is not necessarily going to start right in the middle of the tribulational period, but that the church is taken away before the wrath of God falls. That is known as pre-wrath. There is also a position that says that the church is going to go through the whole seven years of tribulation and then be taken out when Christ returns, when he comes back to judge the world, when he comes back with his rod of iron. That is the time that people say the church is going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and then apparently come back with him for that period of time in the establishment of the kingdom. That is known as post-tribulationalism. Now, if you're looking for an opinion from me, and why not? Um, I find post-tribulationalism the most untenable of those positions. I find that the hardest one to hold on to for several different reasons. Number one, it does mean that the church is going to be here to endure the wrath of God. And that seems contrary to what Paul said that we read last week, that we are not appointed to wrath. 
Also, during that seven-year tribulation period, we read about things like the Antichrist being on the scene and making everybody take a mark without which they can't buy or sell or trade. And if you don't take the mark, you lose your head. So let's assume that Christians are not going to take that mark. Well, well then they're, they're going to be killed. So I'm not sure who Christ is coming back to get at the end of the seven years. That seems to be a problem. Now, post-tribulationists will tell you what they expect is for God to preserve the church through that seven years. They will oftentimes point to Noah in the ark during the flood, and they will say the flood is the wrath of God, and then Noah and his family were preserved through that wrath, and so that is a type and a foreshadow of what God is going to do with the church. He's going to preserve the church through the tribulation. Only problem with that is you don't find anyone in the New Testament actually say that. There's no talk of preserving the church through the tribulation period. And as you examine the returns of Christ, the description that Paul gave us is that we are going to be snatched away, rise up off the earth to meet the Lord in the air, so will we ever be with the Lord, and we're to comfort one another with those words. But then you read in the book of Zechariah about Christ coming back, his feet touch the Mount of Olives, it cleaves in half, and then he begins judgment from there. Well, those are two very, very different details and descriptions of the returns of Christ. It sounds very much like two returns of Christ. And so I am perfectly comfortable with the idea that Christ is coming back to get his church prior to that. But if I may just kind of put the final nail in the coffin of post-tribulationalism, I have actually been doing that for the last couple of weeks. If you've been paying attention and listening, I have already laid out the basic fundamentals that will keep you from believing in a post-tribulational position. Gee, Jim, how have you done that? Well, let me explain. I'm so glad you asked. Um, Post-tribulationalists will very often go to Jesus' own words in both Matthew and Mark. It's in Matthew 24, starting at verse 29. They will read, but immediately after the tribulation of those days... Okay, that's a time statement immediately after the tribulation of those days. They'll point to that and say, whatever comes next happens after the tribulation of those days. And after that, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. That's all language that we saw is corresponding to the day of the Lord, the celestial disturbances, the return of Christ in glory. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Then look at verse 31. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet blast. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And they will say, see, there's your rapture. There's the gathering of the church. They are gathered immediately after the tribulation of those days. And when I hear that argument, 
which I heard again just this week, I'm surprised that people don't know their Bible any better than that. Because first off, Jesus is talking at a time before Pentecost, before he's been to the cross, before the establishment of the church, before he has poured out his blood, he's talking to people who are still under the law of Moses, and he's talking about Israel's future. The entirety of chapter 24, as you read it, is about Israel's future, proven by the fact that he says things like, you that are in Judea, get ready to flee. So he's very specific with his language. He's not talking to the church. He's clearly talking to Israel. Now, the audience he is talking to would know their own history and their own scripture, which includes things like, and these are things that I read to you where we were proving through multiple Old Testament passages that God is still going to be faithful to Israel, is still going to regather Israel a second time. And some of the passages we read are like Isaiah 27, starting at verse 12. In that day, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, you sons of Israel. And it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. So there's going to be a trumpet blown to gather the sons of Israel And those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and those who were scattered in Egypt will come to worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. Psalm 107.1, we read it last Wednesday. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say that, say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and has gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. So far it sounds like, okay, there's going to be a trumpet, and he's going to gather Israel from the north, south, east, and west. Okay, got it. Isaiah 43, the first seven verses say, But now thus says Jehovah that created thee, O Jacob, he's talking directly to Israel, he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name because you are mine. When you have passed through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, and they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon you. For I am Jehovah thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I have given Egypt as thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in thy stead. Since thou hast been precious in my sight and honorable, I have loved thee, and therefore will I give men in your stead and the peoples instead of your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west. And I will say to the north, give her up, and to the south, keep her not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, every one of them that is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, yea, whom I have made. Okay, now we went into greater detail on Wednesday night, but what I was striving to show you is God is going to be faithful in the regathering of Israel. And here he has even told us where he's going to gather them from and where he's going to gather them to. He's bringing them back to 
Israel, bringing them back to Jerusalem, bringing them back to their land that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's going to gather them, the promise is, from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west. He's going to get them with what? A trumpet call. And so there's going to be a gathering of all Israel. Yeah, but what about the fact that Matthew says his elect? Doesn't that mean the church? In the Bible, when you read elect, doesn't that always mean the church? No. In the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as God's chosen, God's elect, over and over again. For instance, Isaiah 45.4, the NASB has, this is God speaking to Cyrus, the Persian king. He says, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen I have also called you by name, and I have given you a title of honor, although you have not known me. The King James rendering of that same passage says, For Jacob my servant's sake, for Israel my elect. Or Psalm 135.4, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. Or Isaiah 41.8-9, But you, Israel my servant, Jacob, mine elect, Jacob, whom I've chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and have said to you, you are my servant. I have elected you. I have chosen you. I have not rejected you. Turn to the book of Romans for just a moment. Or you can just listen and I'll read it to you. Because even Paul in the New Testament, knowing all that, knowing that God is promising to regather Israel, and knowing that Israel is God's chosen and God's elect people, Paul uses all of that for the basis of his argument in Romans 11, starting at verse 25. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed or ignorant of this mystery, mysterion in the Greek, a previously unrevealed truth, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That partial hardening means part of Israel is hardened. Part of Israel is enlightened. Paul himself is an Israelite. The early church was all Israelites. All the apostles were Israelites. So there is a partial hardening that is going on in Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has been brought in. And thus, says verse 26, and thus all Israel will be saved. And then he proves it by going back to Psalm 14:7 and says, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Who's Jacob? Israel. Israel. This is New Testament, remember. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And then verse 28, Paul, knowing the situation, says, from the standpoint of the gospel, he's now writing to Gentile believers in Rome and says, as touching the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, salvation by grace through faith, as touching that, they are enemies. Israel is enemies for your sake. Why? Because they're hardened. 
That's why they don't get it. That's why they don't know it. But from the standpoint of God's election, because Paul knows that Israel is elect, but from the standpoint of God's election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, the unconditional promises that God has made to the descendants of Abraham. And why is it that they are still beloved because of God's election? Verse 29 says, it's because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, unchangeable. So everywhere in the Old Testament that you see promises made to Israel, that you see covenants made to Israel, and get this right, every covenant in the Bible is with Israel. There are no later covenants all the way to the new covenant. It's made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And so because of God's promises and because of God's covenants, he's going to remain faithful because he doesn't change. And in order for God to choose Israel and then decide against them would mean that God changed his mind. And you don't want a God who changes his mind. You don't want a God who can say, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Right up till you did that. Nope, now I've changed my mind. I don't love you anymore. No, God's gifts, God's calling are irrevocable, unchanging. And that means all those promises that we read about Israel's gathering are still valid. They still have to happen. For just as you, you Gentiles, were disobedient to God. Anybody want to testify on that one? Just. The same way that you were disobedient to God, but now you've been shown mercy because of Israel's disobedience? So these, these Israelites, the ones that are hardened, also now have been disobedient in order that because of mercy shown to you, they also may be now shown mercy. For God has shut up all of them into disobedience so that he might show mercy to all of them. And then perhaps Micah's favorite passage in the book of Romans, and I agree with him. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Because from him and through him and to him is everything. So to him be the glory forever. Amen. Okay, so put that all together. Now take a look at what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Since that is a key verse that is argued repeatedly for the post-tribulational position, it is not written to the church. It is written before the cross. It's written before Pentecost. It is said to an Israelite audience. And Jesus says the same thing that Joel has said. Jesus says the same thing that Peter will later say at Pentecost, talking about the celestial disturbances. And that's what happens immediately after the tribulation of those days. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign against the dark backdrop of the darkness of no stars in the sky, 
no moon, no light giving its light, and suddenly this bright light is going to flash across the sky, the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. And when it appears, everybody's going to see it. Jesus said it's going to be like the lightning from the east to the west. Everybody's going to observe it. Everybody's going to know he's coming. That's in the book of Revelation described as the time that the men of the earth are going to run and hide and go into the caves and the dens of the earth and yell to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. This is the time of the return in judgment and wrath. And so all the tribes of the earth are going to mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Does that sound anything like what Paul described when he said Christ is going to be coming back in the clouds to catch away his church? And then we're going to ever be with the Lord and so comfort one another with these words? That sounds like a completely different scenario. In this one, the sign of the Son of Man appears in the sky and they'll see him coming with great power and great glory. And what's the first thing he's going to do? And then he'll send forth his angels with a great trumpet blast. Sound familiar? And what are they going to do? They will gather his elect, Israel, from the four winds, the same place that God scattered them and promised to regather them from, and he'll go get them from one end of the sky to the other. No matter where on the earth they are, he's going to find them. He's going to regather them. That is a promise from Jesus to Israel, confirming everything that the prophets of the Old Testament have said about God's faithfulness and intention to regather Israel ultimately. You get it? Yes, sir. Okay, I know that was a little bit of complicated eschatology, but as we're going through these Thessalonian letters, we're going to keep bumping into questions about timing. I think I just effectively eliminated one of those timing options. So now, First Thessalonians, and, and good morning, and it's good to see you, and <laughs> hi. And because the rest of this chapter, closing out the book, is all about Christian behavior. And what you're going to see here is a very consistent theme of taking care of each other, looking after each other, sacrificing for one another, loving one another, being willing to put yourself out on behalf of somebody else. I was listening just this week to a lecture by Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you know him, but he is trained as a psychiatrist, psychologist, one of those two. I don't think I know the difference, but... <laughs> he was talking about the psychologists are increasingly recognizing, especially over the last 40 years, they have recognized a direct correlation between self-involvement, egocentricity, and unhappiness in life, depression, a sense of uselessness and pointlessness. There's a direct correlation between being all about yourself and feeling like your life is useless and pointless. So not only are these good instructions for Christians, but this is good instruction for your emotional, mental health. The more you act like a Christian and give to others and look out for and take care of each other, 
the more at peace you're going to be with yourself. Because if your whole frame of reference is you and only you, well, there's nothing good in you. You can sit around and study your navel for the rest of your life, and all you're going to learn about you is you're just no darn good. The intrinsic value to being Christian is sharing with each other, is helping each other, is lifting each other up. And that is not only good for the other person, but it's ultimately good for you. And in this very narcissistic society in which we find ourselves right now, it's not surprising to see the amount of just unhappiness in our society, the rise in crime, the rise in suicide. People who are so self-involved that when that unhappiness and when that sense of emptiness does come around in their life, they think the best way to get rid of that unhappiness is to do something about themselves. So they decide, well, I'll just be something else. I'm a boy and I'll be a girl, or I'll, I'll be a dog, or I'll be a cat or something. I'll, be, I'll just be something else, because they're trying to answer that emptiness that's inside them. And they don't understand that that emptiness cannot be solved by going further inward. That emptiness can only be solved by helping, by looking outward. And oh, when, when I heard that in Jordan Peterson's lecture, I was like, preach it, just say it. That, that's right. In a nutshell, that's what Christian behavior is. So I think it's interesting when the Bible and human psychology line up that well because the Bible's just true all right so let's start reading we are in first Thessalonians the very last chapter chapter 5 we're going to start reading at verse 12 and I think we can get done this morning and then next week we will begin second Thessalonians but we request of you brethren that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. Now he's talking about those who are leaders within the church. I understand that reading this and emphasizing it seems a little self-serving, but basically I'm talking about Jeff. And so, We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Now, some people balk at the word, have charge over you. What he's saying is those are the leaders within the church, and they are teaching you. They are instructing you. So follow what they say, especially if what they are saying is out of the very word. And so they, in that way, have that charge over you. Because later, Peter himself is going to write that we are not, as leaders within the church, we are not to lord it over the flock that belongs to God. We're supposed to remember who the sheep actually belong to. So there is a balance in the New Testament. Yes, we're supposed to lead and direct and instruct, but we're not allowed to lord it over you or take advantage of you. So then you are instructed to appreciate them. Verse 13 says, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Okay, here, I'll use me as an example. This is perfect. Uh, for those of you who know me, 
I mean, for those of you who really know me, not real lovable. I get it. Okay? I, oh, 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 he's testifying over here. He's not even Pentecostal and he raised his hands. Okay? And so why then should you have some respect for what I do? Well, it's the office that you are to respect and you are to very highly in love esteem them because of the work. The value of the work is why you should esteem them. If they do the work well, if you're being taught well, if you're coming away with a greater understanding of what the Bible says, that's the reason that you ought to esteem those that God has placed over you. And we urge you, brethren, within the church then, to live at peace with one another, which is just really, really interesting. Uh, Paul says repeatedly that we ought to work at it, that we ought to put the effort in, that we ought to strive for peace within the body. And why would he use that kind of language? Because uh, the same way you know me, <laughs> I know you, and I know what you're like, you bunch of rebels. And, and I know that you know not everybody gets along with everybody in the room. I get it. And yet... We're supposed to love each other, sacrifice for one another, and live at peace with one another because, after all, we are sharing the same common Holy Spirit of God. We're saved by the same Christ and the same sacrificial work. And we're going to spend eternity together, which means you really ought to start getting along now. And we ought to be willing to sacrifice for one another. The reason that people don't get along with each other is usually because you're too wrapped up in you. And how dare you say something I don't like. And you hurt me, and so now I'm going to hurt you worse. Because you're not willing to sacrifice. Paul says, allow yourself to be defrauded. It's better to be defrauded than to create that kind of schism within the church, within the body of Christ. And so here again, he argues in favor of living in peace with one another. And we urge you, brethren, and this is in the category of keeping peace within the church, admonish the unruly. If someone's a troublemaker, if someone's a problem within the church, admonish them, instruct them. Some people are going to be weak in faith. Some people are not going to be as strong as the leaders of the church. So what do we do with them? Do we just make fun of them and throw them out? Well, no. He says, encourage the faint-hearted. Help those that are weak. And be patient with each other. I'd like to stress that one a lot. Be patient with each other. Put up with each other. Understand that not everybody is at the same level of growth within their Christian walk. And so understand that you need to be patient with one another. And if somebody says something, hurts your feelings, you have a couple of choices. You can attack them and create a big schism within the church. Or you can realize that whatever it is they said about you is probably not nearly as bad as what you really are. And so you can be patient with them, be kind to them. 
If you do that, if you strive to live at peace with one another, and then you admonish the unruly ones, the disruptive ones, and you encourage the faint-hearted, if you're willing to bend down and help the weak, and if you're patient with everyone, then there's going to be unity within the church. And there is so much said in Paul's writing about the necessity of there being unity within the church. Because no body of people, I don't care if you're talking about a job, I don't care if you're talking about a Boy Scout troop, I don't care if you're talking about a wedding party. Any group of people you gather together, if they start picking at each other and backbiting and rumoring each other and talking about each other, that, that's going to fall apart really fast. You're not going to be able to work in common toward a common goal, and you're certainly not going to be at peace with each other. That's human nature. And so Paul, recognizing human nature, says it's going to take effort. It's going to take effort on your part. You need to admonish some. You need to encourage some. You need to help some. And you need to be patient with all of them. And then verse 15 says, See that no one repays another with evil for evil. That's what I was saying. If you're so wrapped up in your own ego that you're willing to be offended at every little thing, and oh my goodness, I'm not trying to do social commentary here, but doesn't it seem these days, especially online, like everybody is perpetually offended by everything? Yes. Does it matter? Oh, uh, testimony from the back. I mean, offense is just the coin of the day. Everybody is always so put out and so offended because it is a culture of offense. You know, whatever your difference is, then you want to get real defensive about your difference. Don't you say anything that even implies you don't like my difference. Within the church, see that no one repays another with evil for evil. Jesus said, you're supposed to pray for those who spitefully use you. Jesus said, you're supposed to love your enemies. I know it's not always easy, but that's also what we're called to. So Paul would say, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. I have repeatedly defined sacrificial love as doing what is good for the one who is being loved, whether the one being loved recognizes it or appreciates it or gives you anything back for it. You're doing it sacrificially. And that is what Paul is describing in plain language here, that when people do evil to you, that you don't return evil back to them, but instead that you seek that which is good for one another. Wouldn't you love to be in a room full of people who all have your best interest at heart? Wouldn't that be great? Because you're never going to fail. You're never going to fall. You're never going to be hungry. You're never going to be homeless. You're going to be fine no matter what happens to you in your life. You've got a group of people around you who are going to lift you up and pick you up and dust you off and put you back on the road of life. Wouldn't that be great? That's what the church is supposed to be. We are called to be a unified body of people who all willingly sacrifice for each other and seek each other's good rather than seeking each other's harm. And that is so 
antithetical to the society that we live in that is constantly seeking everyone else's harm. But the church is called to be different in the world, which is why Peter says, be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks about the hope that is within you so that you can give that answer with gentleness and with reverence. Why would anyone ever ask you about that hope that is within you? It's because you're so different. Because you have what Paul calls that peace that passes understanding in the midst of an absolutely insane, mad, crazy, more adjectives, in the midst of an absolutely stupid world, if you can walk around having a sense of peace and calm and purpose and understanding, people will gravitate to you and say, what is it? What have you got? Are, are, are you Buddhist? Do you do Zen? Do you do why? Why? What kind of methodology are you using to be so at peace with yourself and with the world? You're going to have that peace that passes understanding as you serve one another and as you're part of a community that has your best interest and your best good at heart. And that's what we in the church are called to be, salt and light in the midst of a dead, dying, decaying world. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all. Verse 16 is the shortest verse in the Greek in the whole New Testament. It just says, Rejoice always. Always. I love the word always here. It's a translation of a really interesting Greek compound word that I promise you, when I tell you about it, you're going to like it too. The Greek word is pantote. Pan, pos, all, every. Combined with the word when. And everything. Every event in life, everything in time has a when attached to it because it's participating in time. If somebody says to you, let's have lunch, the first thing you're going to say is, sure, when? Because there's a when attached to everything. Remember when I was sick? Back when? History, when? Future, when? Every when. Combine all the whens of your life. Every moment of your life that has a when attached to it, connect all of those, and in every single when, rejoice. So Paul doesn't leave any room for part-time rejoicers. I wish that there was an English word that we could use. It was every when, like everywhere or everybody, just every when. Whatever time you're in, whatever situation you're in, whatever you're going through, whatever God has brought into your life, and when it happens, be ready to rejoice. By the way, that does not say, no matter what happens, be happy. That's not what it says. Because happiness is based on what happens. Happenstance. Whatever occurs in your life, your happiness is based on that. Paul isn't talking about having the emotion of giddiness. He's talking about knowing who you are, what you're doing, what you're up against, and where you're going. And who has you in his hand? 
And who is bringing you through every single day who has promised you eternity in God's glory? If you know that, then no matter what happens in your life, you can rejoice. So it's an attitude of thanksgiving, of rejoicing, and then in verse 17, equally pray without ceasing. We've talked a lot about prayer here in the last several years at GCA. I'm astounded by prayer personally, because if you have any sense of who God really is, I mean really is, the maker of heaven and earth, the almighty supreme one who encases himself in a light that no man approaches, the great eternal judge of everyone and everything, that one lets you talk to him. That's astounding. And you don't have the right to talk to him. I mean, in the Old Testament, the high priest got to go in before God in the Holy of Holies once a year, as long as he had the right clothes on, as long as he had the right sacrifice, and all of Israel had to stand outside. They didn't get to go in and commune with God. That's why Christ is so important. Because it is through Christ, in the name of Christ, in the authority of Christ, that you get to now pray to God in the name of Christ. An astounding thing that that God would invite you to come talk to him, and on top of that, let you call him Abba? Father? Jesus said, now when you pray, go say, our Father, who is in heaven. And then immediately admit, your name is hallowed. Your name is different from us. Your name is separate from us. There's no sin in you. Your name. God's very jealous about his name. Big Ten, the Big Ten Commandments. Right after you'll have no other gods before me, he said, and don't take my name in vain. He's real jealous about his name. So when you pray to him, You start with our Father in heaven. Your name, your name is hallowed, separate from us. Only when you recognize who it is you're talking to do you get to say things like, thank you for feeding me. Thank you for giving me clothes. Thank you for all the ways you provide for me. Thank you for forgiving me. And don't lead me into temptation. And deliver me from the evil one. You don't get to any of that until you recognize who it is you're talking to because it is an astounding privilege that he would allow you to talk to him. And people neglect it. That amazes me. When Paul here says, don't ever stop. Don't ever reach the point where you think, I'm all prayed up. I'm good. Pray constantly, pray unceasingly, no matter what you're going through. And in everything, says verse 18, in everything. How many things? Everything. In the midst of everything, give thanks. That's why I like Thanksgiving. In the midst of everything, give thanks. So you mean in the middle of a heart attack? Yeah, because that heart attack couldn't reach you without going through nail-scarred hands first. 
Whatever you're going through, whatever difficulty you're going through, he's the one that brought it to you and allowed it to be in your life. He's the sovereign over all of it. And so even in the midst of that, give thanks because that might be your ticket home. You don't know. He might be taking you to glory and you're going to be really thankful. No matter what you're going through, before you eat a meal, give thanks. Get up in the morning and know your own name. Give thanks. There are people who woke up this morning and bombs were falling on them. Anybody here have a bomb in your living room? No? Give thanks. Be grateful, people. Be thankful, people. In everything, give thanks because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You want to know what the will of God is? The will of God is that you love one another, that you sacrifice for each other, that you pray without ceasing, that you rejoice all the time, and that you're thankful. Now, 19 and 20 and, well, all the way through 22 all go together because verse 19 says, do not quench the spirit. Remember that what we call the New Testament didn't exist at the moment that Paul was writing this. There were still prophets. And as we talked about false prophets this last Wednesday, I defined the word prophetes as meaning to speak under inspiration. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, sometimes people are able to tell the future, foretell what's going to happen. But also just saying the word of God under inspiration, being willing to tell people about Christ through inspiration, that also falls under the heading of prophetes. The word here in verse 20 that says, do not despise prophetic utterances is prophetia. It's the same idea. It's the inspiration of God and people speaking forth under that inspiration. So don't quench that. Don't despise that, but, I like verse 21, but examine everything carefully. So that means if you've just got somebody making up stuff, babbling incoherently, claiming it's the Holy Spirit, and then telling you they've heard from God and they've got a message for you, then you're supposed to be careful about that, discern that, figure out whether that's valid or not. Don't quench the Spirit but also be very circumspect, very careful about what people say under inspiration. Examine everything carefully and then hold fast to that which is good. How will you know if it's good? By testing it. By testing it, it's going to correspond with the Word of God. If they're saying something that you don't find in the Word of God, no. Not accurate, won't hear it. And then abstain from every form of evil. I think that in this moment is within the context of not quenching the spirit, not despising prophetic utterances, but you know there are going to be people who are going to claim prophetic utterances who are going to encourage you to do things that are evil, that are anti-God. That is the very way that so many of the Old Testament prophets of other gods pulled the people of Israel away from Yahweh to go and worship other gods, just raw evil. And so if somebody is saying things to you and claiming that they're doing it through prophetic utterance 
and then they're saying things to you that don't correspond with the Bible, things that are going to pull your soul toward the temptation to leave God and worship other things, including worshiping yourself, that, that's just raw ego and raw evil. So therefore, get rid of it. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Okay, so all of that that I read from verse 12 all the way to verse 22, that is all Christian behavior that Paul is encouraging the church at Thessalonica to behave in. And as I said at the beginning of the description, you will notice that it is all about taking care of one another, loving one another, sacrificing for each other, doing what is good for each other, not vaunting yourself, not being full of your own pride and ego, not thinking that you're the center of attention all the time. Instead, it is all about caring for one another. And so at verse 23, as he is wrapping up the letter, he says, now may the God of peace, a title that I do love, the God of peace, now may the God of peace himself Sanctify you, separate you, separate you from yourself, from your flesh, from your sin, from this world, separate you for his own use, and may he do that entirely, and may your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved complete, without blame, when? When? When are you going to be without blame? Anybody here feeling without any blame at this moment? I shouldn't have put my hand up. Anybody feeling without blame? No. When are we going to be utterly blameless, body, soul, and spirit? At the coming, at the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes back for his church, when he comes to get us, when we rise into the air, when we go through the instantaneous change, those of us who are alive and remain, when we, as corruptible people, put on incorruption, when we who are defiled become holy, when Christ comes back, then we will be completely without blame. And notice how complete that blamelessness will be. Paul says, pneuma, suke, from which we get psyche, psychology, pneuma, suke, and soma, the body, the flesh. All three, your entire person, the psychology of who you are, the physicality of who you are, the spirituality of who you are, and the fleshliness of who you are. All of you completely is going to be redeemed, is going to be changed, is going to be sanctified for God's own use. It is a complete and utter change from everything you are to everything you're going to be, and it's going to happen at the return of Christ Jesus. That's going to be a good day. Yes. I can't wait for that day, because if you're anything like me, and I hope to God you're not, if you're anything like me, you're real tired of this body by now. You're real tired of your own brain by now. Because I'm just so fleshly and corrupt, I can't wait for the day of the new body. When Christ said, I'm going to make all things new, and when he is finally going to make good on that finished work he has done, paying for our sin debt, all he has to do now is sanctify us entirely. And when he comes back, he's going to sanctify us, body, soul, spirit, utterly, completely. So is that going to happen? Look at verse 24. 
faithful is he who calls you, and he also is going to bring it to pass. Good news. Yeah. He, the faithful one who called you to Jesus Christ, is the very one who is going to perform the gathering of his church and sanctifying us, body, soul, and spirit, so that we will ever be with the Lord. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Verse 25 is Paul's personal note. Brethren, pray for us. Well, yeah, Paul's going through tough times, the stonings, the beatings, everything else. Pray for us. Verse 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. You know, uh, I've gone into churches before where they practice that. And I have to admit that the first time I walked into Main Street Church up in Lexington and people came up to me and, and would kiss me on the cheek, kiss me on both cheeks. Men would, would kiss me. And I was talking to Elder Ward one day about it. And he said, you know, one of the most terrible things that has happened to Christianity and culture is that because homosexuality has become such a part of our society and everybody has an opinion about it or a revulsion to it or whatever else, that if a man kisses a man on the cheek in a holy way as a greeting or as a send-off, the same way that the elders of Ephesus descended on Paul and loved him, hugged him, kissed him, and sent him on his way, he said, in those days, nobody gave any thought about the appropriateness of it. It was what we are called to do and a demonstration of love and concern for each other. And me personally, I wish that we didn't have all the baggage that now in our society surrounds the idea of men showing affection to men because it is an appropriate affection, because it's affection built on our common love for God, love for Christ, common spirit, and love for each other. So I hate the destruction of the holy kiss by the larger society. So I adjure you, says verse 27, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. Paul wanted everybody to hear this instruction. And finally, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I don't know if I can come up with a better benediction than to say, I hope that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is with all of you. Because if the grace of Christ is with you, you're going to be okay. He's going to get you through whatever comes. And we're going to gather around the throne of God and sing praises to him eternally. Uh, and that's only a result of the grace of Christ being with you. So I hope, I pray the same way Paul does, that the grace of Christ will be with all of you. What a great way to end the letter. So that's 1 Thessalonians. Next week, 
We'll begin 2 Thessalonians, and you're going to be surprised how quickly Paul suddenly goes back to eschatology, and we will continue talking about the whens of all of it. When are these things going to occur? When are these things going to happen? And regardless of when it happens, remember in every when, be thankful, especially this coming Thursday. I'll see you. Bye. God, it is with hearts of thanksgiving that we, first of all, acknowledge Christ Jesus, and we are so thankful that he came to earth and set aside the glory that he had so that he could 
walk among sinful men to be able to redeem his own and that he has ascended upon high and has not left us here alone but given us his spirit to inhabit us and given us your word, Lord, so that we could know more about you, so that we could be instructed in the ways that we learned about today, uh, that we could come alongside one another, that we could care for each other, that we could give thanksgiving always in all things because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. So in this week of thanksgiving, we are thankful for the Son of God, thankful for the Spirit, thankful for your word, thankful that you have given us a teacher to help us understand it, thankful that you've given us occupations and jobs and responsibilities and family members that love and care for one another. We just pray for those who are in difficult circumstances, those who are struggling. We pray for all of the things that we are embarrassed or struggle to mention, all the things that we suffer from, Lord. We are broken people, but because of what Christ Jesus has done, somehow we still are perfected forever, and that's a marvelous thing to be thankful for. So we ask, as we go upon this new week, that it would be a spirit of thanksgiving that leads us into all things so that we would have that peace that resides in our heart, that we would be joyful, and that would be a marked difference for all of those who have selfish ambitions in this world, and they can wonder and inquire about the difference, and we can be quick to say, it is Christ Jesus, and it is his spirit that has made a difference in us, and may he be, be praised now and evermore. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. We appreciate you listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.